The Guardian. Hello, this is the Business Podcast. I'm Adit Chakraborty. Coming up this week... Nobody really wanted Tesco in Stokes Croft. You know, everyone's pro the local businesses and nobody wants their business to be damaged. But for me, when it got to this stage, just like a step too far, it didn't, it didn't warrant this. As Tesco is welcome to a Bristol suburb with a Molotov cocktail party, Ed Miliband joins the campaign against so-called clone towns. But can anything stop the rise and rise of the supermarkets? Also this week, it was part of George Osborne's big reveal in the budget. From tomorrow, the supplementary charge levied on oil and gas production will increase from 20% to 32%. It's paid for a cut in fuel duty at the petrol pump. But has a chance they got it wrong on the North Sea windfall tax? And Portugal takes its medicine. A 78 billion euro rescue fund is agreed. But at what price? Joining me in the studio, I've got the director of the Res Publica think tank and Cameron's sometime advisor, Philip Blond. From the New Economics Foundation and author of Tescopoli, Andrew Sims. From the Guardian's business desk, our columnist, Niels Prattley. And author of Jilted Generation, Shiv Malik. Let's begin with Tesco's. Now, Shiv, you were at that protest a couple of weeks ago in Bristol. Can you tell us what it was that got the residents so fired up? I uh, Essentially, there'd been a long lead up for about a year and a bit, uh, sort of anti-Tesco sentiment and a campaign to get rid of Tesco's. Uh, Locals there, certainly in Stokes Croft in Bristol, didn't want Tesco's in their area. They say there's enough Tesco's around. There's one sort of five minutes uh, up and down the road on each side. So they had this long campaign and ostensibly the police came in on a threat a couple of weeks ago to uh, Telepathic Heights, which is a squat which is exactly opposite Tesco's. And uh, on, on the threat that someone had a petrol bomb they say they seized something from there, which is where petrol bomb and other sort of petrol bomb implements. But by doing that, by, by the raid, a lot of other people sort of gathered around. It was sort of nine o'clock on a warm, balmy evening on a Thursday. Uh, and uh, within a couple of hours, a riot had sort of set off because sort of, you know, people who were ostensibly drunk to start with couldn't make their way home. Uh, so they're a bit upset and obviously upset by the massive police presence that the police had originally sent in about 30 or 40 police, including a couple of mounted officers and some helicopters. And a, a riot started uh, and the end of it Tesco's was completely the front of it was completely eradicated uh, (laughs) by protesters sort of chucking bottles and there was a lot of serious injuries on both sides and how much of this was anti-Tesco's how much was anti-police how much was just drunkenness well, some of it was, well, it was a mixture of all of those things. Um, but I think about halfway through that riot, uh, I think people, the anti-Tesco sentiment sort of welled. Uh, they wanted a, a target that just wasn't just the police. And that, in that sense, uh, they, uh, they took their anger out on Tesco's directly. So it had been welling up for a long time. So that was certainly part of it. And, and afterwards, and certainly in the clear up, uh, people then mentioned as Tesco's being a, a major part of that, that anger that has been welling up in the community. And just for a bit of background, tell us what the issue is was with Tesco's in Stokecroft? Well, the, the locals there sensibly thought they were cheated. Tesco's had applied for a licence uh, under what was sort of an old, a comedy club there. And, uh, and they used the name of that comedy club to apply for that licence to turn the, uh, the, the, the former premises into a supermarket. So they felt cheated that they didn't know that Tesco's was arriving. Uh, and then they've also felt that the council, uh, local Bristol uh, 
an Avon uh, council wasn't on their side at all in, ter- in terms of... So when they went to protest in the council uh, and they held up their sort of... Uh, um, they gave various reasons for why Tesco shouldn't come, uh, that, you know, they felt that the council sort of sensibly ignore them totally. Uh, and they have an interesting motto down in Stokescroft, which is... And they've been doing lots of interesting work over the last sort of four or five years to turn it into the community that they want to see. And their motto is, don't develop Stokescroft, let Stokescroft develop. And that's really their message. Uh, And it's one that they feel that is being totally ignored by the outside world. Andrew, as one of the doughtiest campaigners against monopoly of our high street by Tesco's, this must must warm your heart. I think it's interesting that Tesco seem to have somehow promoted themselves into the uh, League of Public Animosity on a level with the banks. When I saw those photographs of Stokes Croft, it just reminded me of some of the more violent protests against the banks. And they've become, in effect, a lightning conductor rod for a process of change in the heart of our communities and the high street, which people feel deeply uneasy about. And they do so for a number of reasons. One is because the big supermarkets have a big economic impact. They tend to act like giant vacuum cleaners sucking wealth out of communities. And also because of the the business model that they have, they tend to dissolve the social glue that holds communities together. There's some really interesting research coming out of America where quite surprising effects are felt, like voting rates go down when a big Walmart comes into a community. People literally have fewer conversations as they go about their day-to-day business. So there's reasons why people think the balance has shifted too far the wrong way. And Tesco's has more than double the size of its nearest competitor, has become the lightning conductor. And when they engage in the kind of tactics that we've heard about, such as applying for license applications under the names of comedy clubs, people feel that they're, they're large, they're powerful, they feel like they can't trust them, and they feel powerless to do things against it. So it's absolutely not to endorse the fact that you get a violent conflagration. But I think what happens when people feel powerless over things happening in their local communities is that ultimately, when you get this mixture of circumstances, bad things out. Nils Prattley, um, Andrew Sims has given us a picture of communities which no longer talk to each other, helpless in the face of this big, bad monopoly uh, retailer Tesco's and yet it takes in one in every seven pounds it posted record profits last week Terry Leahy who used to head up Tesco's is probably one of the most respected businessmen that produced by British business over the last two decades yeah all all that's true I mean and I've got a lot of sympathy for what Andrew says and I think I think the uh, you've got to recognize why why uh, Terry Lee gained that recognition? I mean, it is for the sort of the clinical efficiency with with, with which Tesco pursued a, a strategy of uh, of opening stores. It was then able to, in my opinion, sort of bamboozle the competition competition commission in in, uh, in being able to buy TNS stores and various uh, chains of sort of small uh, grocers, particularly in London. And it's arrived at this position where it does dominate the dominate the high street. I think you can both admire the kind of the clinical business efficiency of uh, of Tesco's operations, and also be deeply uneasy, to use Andrew's phrase, about its effect on the high street and the effect on communities. Philip Blonde, is this another case where economic efficiency runs uh, into the headwinds of community spirits? Well, I think what, what's interesting, is it raises questions about what's efficient about economic efficiency, because I think what's, uh, where the debate now is moving in economics is actually what's inefficient about that model. It excludes all manner of values that we think are 
both socially and indeed economically uh, valuable. So that if we, for instance, externalise costs and, and put them onto the community, take, for example, environmental issues, if we are able to pollute and not pay, we're externalising a cost and other people pick it up, normally the taxpayer. So I think what, what's interesting, and indeed Respublica has a report out very shortly on competition, is the criteria that the Competition Commission has been using is the narrowest form of narrowest matrix one can conceive of. Interestingly, it comes from the Chicago School. And the Chicago School, who were like extreme free marketeers, ended up endorsing monopoly, precisely because the model they had, which was price utility, essentially the aim of markets is produce the lowest price. And the interesting thing is they used to argue that monopolies couldn't deliver a low price. But what we've actually seen is the whole of, well, many sectors in Western economies, both US and UK, have in effect become oligopolies. And actually, large uh, oligopolies, or indeed monopolies, are able to deliver massive profits and lower prices. And paradoxically, the Chicago School ended up moving from an extreme pro-market position to endorsing monopoly. And you've seen this shift in the right, and many on the right can't get it. They don't understand that we're not dealing with open and free markets. We're dealing with closed markets, and we produce a rentier economy, where actually very big business, and I've got nothing against big businesses, we need big businesses, have essentially captured the market for cartel-type interests. And the barriers to market entry are so large now that new entrants or the possibility of people entering and challenging is essentially illusory. And therefore, what we need to do is to actually think that our market model, efficiency, doesn't deliver the type of markets we want. And that's where I think the most interesting debates are. And actually, if you're in favour of open markets, as I am, if you're in favour of minimal barriers to market entry, as I am, there's a pro-market case to be made against oligopolistic capture of, of our economy. Just to come back to you on the description of Tesco's as being part of an oligopoly, uh, I could read the story of Tesco's in, in a different way, which would be that it started off as essentially as just a food retailer. It went into selling non-food items, TVs, mobile phones. It now sells home insurance. So actually what it's doing is it's just competing successfully in other markets. It's not the case that it monopolises these markets. It just goes into new markets and does very well in them. And, and, and I don't object to that. But let me give you an example. But why are you trying to penalise it now for the fact that it's just gone into all these new markets in quite, actually in quite recent history, in the I'm last not, decade or so? I'm not attacking businesses for going into new markets because actually I think it's good because then the new market entrance in new markets but let's take for instance barriers to market entry one of the reasons one of the advantages that accrues to bigger businesses is the ability to purchase in bulk and the ability to discipline your supply chain to capture a supply chain and to pay minimal costs for it now current rates the difference between for instance what tesco's can buy at and what smaller chains can buy at is roughly 15 percent so they pay 15% less for their goods than any comparable competitor. Now, what that then allows them to do is further dominate the market because it means the price per square foot that they can pay in our, in our sort of town centres and our, our regional shopping locales allows them to outcompete, to outbid 
relative competitors. So what that effectively is, is their uses of a supply chain, and often they cut off and they aggressively try to prevent their competitors from gaining access to a supply chain. But they also force their suppliers into one model and one model that serves them. So for me, that's unfair competition and actually prevents market entry. So I have no objection to new entrances in other businesses. That's not the point. The point is, is what are the barriers to market entry within that sphere, within that business? And are there unfair oligopolistic advantages that accrue to the larger players to prevent competition? And I would argue in many, many areas there are. Now, at the weekend, Ed Miliband popped up on the BBC's politics show, and it was this issue that he singled out for special attention. I think local people should have more of a say over what happens on their high street, and that's one of the things that we're looking at. I think it is a problem that people think that the character of their local high street is being uh, changed and that they have no power against big corporations in this country. Absolutely, I think that is an issue, uh, and that is one of the things that our policy review uh, is looking at as a priority. These are all... I think I'm rather proving my point, John, which is that I am laying out the big themes that matter to our country in a way that this government isn't. so, so So these aren't warm words. You would take action. To prevent the Tescoization of the high street. I think street. that is an issue, yeah, and I think it does it is something that we're looking at. And I think people do worry about all of the high streets being the same. And also it, it's not about what I think, it's so about what do you do? local is it about people. Planning laws? It is about planning. Of course that's one of the issues that needs to be looked at, yeah. Andrew Sims, how much of a difference does this represent in uh, Labour leadership thinking on Tesco's? Because it used to be the case that Labour would think that if Tesco's were able to offer food at lower prices, then that was a good thing for the poor. How much of a change from Labour's past? Well, that's an interesting question, because when Tony Blair first came to power, he famously made a speech in which he lamented the way in which the supermarkets had Britain's farmers in an arm lock and appeared to sympathise with their lot. Then you had Gordon Brown talking about rip-off Britain, in which he was going to take on the power of big businesses. Shortly after that, Terry Lee got a knighthood, so there was then a complete flip. We're back to square one, it seems to me. But I'm delighted that Ed Miliband is saying this, because apart from anything else, the deep environmental unsustainability of the model. I mean, there's a word they have to describe the business model, which Tesco's is copying in the way that it's done in the United States, the growth of these vast, great sort of retail parks outside great sprawling suburban areas. They call them the dead zone. So you seem, it seems as if you're caught between the kind of the clone town and the dead zone almost. But the fact that Ed Miliband has tapped into this, people do feel a big unease. They, they want authenticity in the places they live. They want character. They want to feel a sense of place. And that's one of the other things which the supermarkets kill off. Philip Blonde, you've spent some time advising David Cameron. Does he feel this deep unease about the growth of Tesco's? Well, I mean, let me answer that question in a different way. I think that what's interesting is all MPs of whatever political stripe are all involved in trying to defend the high street. I can't think of many MPs who haven't been involved in some aspects of trying to stop post offices closing, trying to generate or maintain the diversity on the high street. What's really interesting is to look politically and say who's got the vision to grasp the nettle? Who's going to actually make the moves in competition law, to make the moves in tax localism, to incentivise the sort of outcomes that 
that people want. And I think then there's another great issue, which is who's going to remove the subsidies that certain business models enjoy? And one, I think, has to make the point that, for instance, car parks next to large supermarkets on the outside of towns have a massive subsidy because they're not rated for their true economic value. And that, again, gives another massive competitive advantage. Out-of-town centres enjoy all sorts of covert and overt tax subsidies, all of which prices in their model and crushes that, the, that, the ordinary way yeah. that the the other that people often used to aspire to independence autonomy and trade that's the argument that gets made against the likes of tesco's it's also not an argument we're hearing from george osborne i've not seen him attack any of these out-of-town retailers well i'm not interested in attacking any business models yeah, but I'm, if not, you, if you, I'm not i'm not i just want to be clear i'm not interested in attacking supermarkets because the supermarkets they're, they're part of any mix that we can conceive of in the future what i am interested in is fair competition a rebalancing of the economy that allows other players and other other uh, other players to enter markets and also to create the type of environment that british people want and time and time again in any surveys we have people want the high street that is vanishing fine and and, and politics about fine and we've had this coalition in power for nearly a year and they've talked a lot about localism but actually when it comes to retail you don't see much evidence but what they might not realize is there's actually a piece of legislation on the books now which was passed under the last labor government Um, which which enables people to do exactly what Ed Miliband wants. We've got the Sustainable yeah. Communities Act, which gives power to local communities to come up with a vision for what, how they would like to see their area develop. And then if any higher power in government, whether it's a local authority or higher up, wants to stop that, then they have to have very good reasons and to publish why not. So the legal power exists for communities to do exactly what Ed Miliband was talking about. Um, I think that it's unfair to say about the current coalition government that they haven't got some powers to tackle this. The local bill. Already in the localism bill, you have the power for a local authority to to give rate relief, both to industrial sectors and to geographical locations. That's in the localism bill. So that a local authority can decide, you know what, we're going to try and help this high street or help this um, sphere of business. We also have community right to buy. We also have the right to challenge and the right to take over. Community right to buy came in under Labour, I think. Uh, Well, it's been extended massively under the local bill and actually community right to buy was never really activated in England and the new powers under localism bill give a massive enfranchisement of communities and and so I think the powers are there in the localism bill our recent report right to retail actually tried to take this agenda further and we argued for the variability for instance of business rates so that a local authority within a community could decide to actually create a political economy to deliver the type of planning mix that they want. So I think, and, and I've had many discussions with, with both uh, MPs and ministers about this, I think there's considerable interest. And I think the traction with uh, the government is about the notion of fair competition. And I think that we're likely to see further developments on this. It does mean you need the tough regulator who's prepared to deal with the abuses of power and the competition questions at the at the big level as well 
on uh, local people taking back some power for themselves in a sense that Stokescroft has in fact uh, uh, been awarded a community action zone sort of order so there's a if you've been to Bristol and you've come off the M32 there is a roundabout which is locally known as uh, the bear pit uh, which is sort of a sunken roundabout and in that sunken element of it it's basically it's just a whole load of asphalt with some grass and it's been an eyesore for, for years and decades and people in Stokescroft have basically got the council to grant them this order and now the council has to do whatever Stokescroft want to do with this area and they're I mean you know they're actually quite scared about it because they think well look this is a massive project for us and we could fail at this uh, that's the people in Stokescroft um, but and at the same time for years they've been going around and trying to do up buildings I mean they see Stokescroft people in Stokescroft as, as being completely neglected uh, for decades and so they've been doing it themselves and Banksy obviously came from there massive attack came from there uh, that same sort of area and uh, and so they've been developing the you know and putting up murals and, and artworks and sort of all sorts of buildings but they also feel that in many ways the council their elected representatives just aren't on their side and that's and that's uh, you know a reason for a lot of frustration Niels Prattley we've heard about uh, MPs we've heard about ministers we've even had regulators chucked in let me quote you a letter right to the Times from last week he wrote he or she wrote if the majority of residents are opposed to the opening of a small Tesco store surely a simple boycott would ensure its rapid failure probably true a, a rapid boycott would but, but I mean how are you going to achieve that boycott I mean I think it's a sort of you know Tesco doesn't need everybody in in the community uh, to shop at its local store in order for that um, you know that sort of come viable I mean you know you need 100% boycott to make it work I mean even you know an 80% boycott might not even be uh, be effective so I mean I, I think it's sort of it's simplistic it's sort of simplistic point I mean I think the one thing that occurs to me listening to Philip there about the Tory party is, I mean, the loudest retail voice I, I hear from, from the Tory comes from the sort of Simon Wolfson <laughs> wing of the Tory party, which is you know, the chief executive next, who's arguing for, let's get rid of these planning, planning, uh, planning restrictions, these, these sort of do-gooding uh, local councillors are sort of getting in the way of creating jobs. You know, let's just sort of, let, let's get on, create some jobs and let's get the economy moving. It seems to be the prevailing tone. Uh, well, look, I think this is a very interesting question about regulation. The left has always assumed the only response to kind of monopoly control is regulation. But regulation is a massive barrier to market entry. And re- uh, regulation is pro-monopoly, pro-incumbency and anti-new entrant. So it's the first time I've ever heard planning restrictions described as being anti- anti-monopoly. Well, they... In, no... What I'm, argu- what, what I'm arguing is regulation is pro-monopoly. Yeah. This is the the interesting point. Now, so so because what regulation does is erect a, a, a very large barrier to SME participation and market entry. What Surely I think, it depends what type of regulation. Well, that's though. that's the it's point. It's not I was universally going. applied to regulation. You could have regulation which empowers and opens up. If you if you have regu- the kind of regulation that controls the abuses of power of the big monopolies and which creates an open market at the local level, you, I don't think you can't brand regulation per se. No, no, no. As being I, I'm not branding branding regulation per se, but I'm saying the tendency to regulate through a type of universal approach actually often has counter. Uh, intuitive outcomes and and in a way what we've actually seen and one of the reasons we've seen the massive development of oligopolies in so many of our industries is actually only certain industries have the scale to deal with regulation what I'm in favour of is the right type of regulation and a localization of that regulation Okay, so let's finish with some fancy politics because this is the week of the local elections and a referendum. Uh, if the government wanted to reduce the power of supermarkets and bring greater diversity back into town centres 
what policy would you come up with? I'll go around the table and I'll start with you, Philip. Well, I I am not anti-supermarket, but what I would like to see is the benefits and the subsidies that they enjoy equalised so that others can enjoy them. One idea I have is, is that we should actually allow mass participation in the purchasing chain. We should also allow those who produce for supermarkets to have more powers to prevent them being in effect squeezed. So what I think we should look at in both on demand and supply is an equalisation of competition, a rebalancing of competitive forces so that others can, in essence, have a, have a first shot at delivering the sort of services people genuinely want. Step one, you could reverse the uh, the takeover of um, TNS stores and some of those uh, chains that Tesco took over, you know, five or six years ago, because I think it's sort of high street domination rather than out of town domination that really um, sort of makes people most uneasy. Andrew, uh, it's a couple of things. One is the Competition Commission, in one of its previous inquiries into the supermarkets, observed that the supermarkets' ability to exercise market distorting power kicked in down their supply chain when they had around about 7 or 8% of the market. So why do we allow the supermarkets overall to have any more than 7 or 8% of the market? So I'd say proper competition regulation that prevents them getting market distorting size and power. And the other thing I'd do is to, at the local level, acknowledge the extra added economic and social value that smaller and independent shops bring and give them much more differential treatment in business rates and other things like that to open the market up at the local level, recognising their extra value. Shiv. If we're going for fantasy, I'd get rid of the sort of 1945 Town and Planning Act you know, and all the sort of legislation that flowed from that. And uh, and it's in a sense, I agree with Philip. I'd go right back to basics and say, well, look, what do people actually want in their local areas? Because you have this massive tension between people who feel they're not being represented by these sort of slightly higher authorities, like a sort of local council. Um, but in their local area, on their street, they don't have a say. Well, let's leave that there for now. There's more on our website, guardian.co.uk forward slash business. This is The Business with Aditya Chakraborty. Now, at the budget six weeks ago, George Osborne picked a fight with gas companies. In order to fund the cut to fuel duty, he took a big bite out of the profits from the North Sea's natural energy resources. But at the weekend, big gas struck back. Centrica, owner of British Gas, warned that the result might mean it would have to mothball its Morecambe Bay production facility, the biggest in Britain, for good. Niels Prattley, what's the beef? Well, the beef from the gas companies is that um, uh, producing gas and producing oil in the North Sea is a very different game with very different uh, economics. Centrica's, uh, uh, strictly speaking, they haven't said they will mothball it. They've said they will consider mothballing it in a month's time uh, after a uh, four-week close down for maintenance. And they will look at the prevailing gas prices at the time. A rising gas price would uh, favour the uh, continued production at Morgan Bay falling gas price wouldn't but their point is that you know the economics of production at at Morecambe Bay are now very finely balanced it may be cheaper for them to import gas from abroad you know presumably LNG from Qatar or uh, some gas through the kind of uh, for the pipelines from from the continent and they're saying it may still be profitable to produce at South Morecambe Bay even at an 81% uh, tax rate but it's the relative profitability that counts and it may be cheaper to import i mean the beef their big beef is that uh, really the chancellor ought to have known that um the economics of gas and oil production are different and that um uh you know it's marginal for the gas producers andrew sims this is a old-fashioned punch-up of the sort that's often produced by windfall taxes whose side are you on 
I think you've got to look at it from the perspective that the fossil fuel companies generally have been having enjoying a double windfall. On, on, on the first hand, their basic economic model is you liquidate a non-renewable natural asset for cash. And then when prices float up, but basic core costs don't change, they get windfall profits. Now, it's been a long debate about the way in which Britain as a country kind of frittered away its income from the North Sea. It, it paid for the downturn in the, ni- in the 1980s. It was never invested in the long-term energy security and the new energy infrastructure that the UK so obviously needs. Now, we missed a trick. You take a country like Norway, which has had, in effect, a recurrent annual windfall tax on their fossil fuel companies, which has built up this huge cushion, financial cushion, for whatever the country the needs sovereign to spend wealth fund that they Exactly, the Sovereign yeah. Wealth Fund, which is tens of thousands of pounds worth for every citizen in Norway. Now, we know that our energy system is going to have to change, and it seems to me that there's a logic to put, even at this late stage in the game when sort of North Sea oil is in decline, but still making a hell of a lot of money for the, for the oil companies, it makes sense to put a tax on them for unearned profit that, that, that they're enjoying that can be reinvested in long-term energy security and a clean energy system. And I think this is the one thing where I, I think the government have got it wrong in terms of selling it to the public, and that's that they're offering the benefits through in reduced oil um, and fuel cost to the general public. So they're kind of taxing the fuel companies to keep people addicted to cheap fuel. And that doesn't seem to make any sense at all. Shiv, whose side are you on? Well, just to chip in with what Andrew's saying about this sort of uh, intergenerational aspect, i.e., you know, what Norway did. So they... Uh uh, their, well, their sovereign worth, wealth fund is worth about three hundred billion pounds now today, and if we had done the same, Price Waterhouse Coopers did an interesting study that if we had done the same, we'd have four hundred and fifty billion pounds today, uh, which is a massive difference, obviously, in in the situation that we currently find ourselves in. So, uh, uh, if you spread those benefits over time and over generations, then clearly, I mean, that's a better way of doing things, and it's certainly far more a long term solution to uh, to how to divide up this wealth. Neil, we've had a lot of big picture thinking from these two just brings down to the brass acts of this dispute. I mean the point here I think the point here is that yes it would have been a very good idea to tax tax uh, North Sea production more heavily in 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 uh, decades gone by the point is in the here and now um, if putting up tax uh, the tax rate uh, results in the producers turning off the assets and not producing uh, as a as an exchequer you are probably you, you or you you threaten to become Worse off, you may, you may, it may be a self-defeating move. By isn't I mean, this my, classic bluff calling though from well, the companies? I, this is what they always I, do. I suspect. Yeah, you know, my instinct was was exactly the same to think that uh, yes, yeah, Centrica may be conducting an almighty bluff here. But I suspect there is a number at which it will make sense for them to to turn it off, and a number that it makes sense for them to turn it on. I would have thought, if you're Chancellor's Exchequer, you would seek to establish that number before you uh, announce your tax rate. And I don't think the Treasury did any work like that. There was no consultation here whatsoever. And I think that was unwise, because I, I think they may not be bluffing. And what's the con- I, mean, I think some of the oil companies may well be bluffing, but I'm not sure that Centrica, as a gas producer, is. And what's the consequence of turning off Morecambe Bay? Because they they'll, they'll go um, and supply our gas just from buying it in world market. Yeah, they'll they'll buy they'll buy it from overseas. They'll buy it from overseas, and it would be cheap. And so it'll be cheaper. What's the problem with them turning it off? Well, in some ways, you could say there's long term, you know, benefit in the in the fact that this resource is still there to be available to be used at a later date, and presumably they will they they would um, produce it at a time when gas prices are higher, and the, you know the tax tax take for the treasury would be greater at that time. 
in a sense, though, isn't that a, uh, an argument for saying, well, let's get rid of all taxes on North Sea oil? Because uh, they would produce far more, uh, because a lot of the hindrance to why they're not producing at the moment is, is the cost of extraction. There you no, go. Along no, with no, the cost yeah. of taxes. No, no, no. no, no don't, I mean, it's an argument for setting the tax rate at, at a point at which you sort of pluck the goose in the most effective way. Final question this to you, Niels. Um, so you've got a new chancellor. He's just been in for a, a year. He's levied a windfall tax on an unpopular industry, energy industry. Uh, he says he's doing it sticking up for little guy. This just adds to the theory that George Osborne is Gordon Brown reborn, isn't it? <laughs> Maybe, yeah. I mean, you know, the one thing you can say for Gordon Brown, but is at least he did, he did consult. I mean, it was it was a, it was a really painful process sometimes, and you know, the, the indus- industries and big business got the better of the lobbying on most occasions, but um, it did avoid kind of cock-ups. Where does it go next? Do you think? Um, I don't know. It'd be interesting to see what comes out of the Treasury Select Committee today. I mean, I think the. I mean, what we really need do need to uh, establish here is is how much of this is is bluff and how much is not i mean it's just it's just not terribly clear at the moment uh and i think that that's the main work that the treasury select committee could do centrica is not going to reveal commercial secrets but i think the mp should be able to get pretty close to the truth now, before we go, Eurozone Crisis Part 356. It was announced on Wednesday that Portugal has agreed a bailout with the IMF and the EU for 78 billion euros. Niels, 78 billion euros from Portugal. Uh, what else do we need to know about the details of this bailout? Well, we need to know the rate at which they're paying for this money. Uh, the figure itself, 78, is I think it's slightly higher than uh, expectations, not much sort of in the bright ballpark. We need, we need to know the rate they're paying. Are they paying the uh, same as Ireland, same as Greece? There's a percentage points difference between the two. Um, some of the numbers that have appeared are the, uh, the austerity squeeze that's being imposed upon Portugal that on the face of it looks like slightly less austere than the uh, outgoing government had proposed. Uh, but they, that may simply be the f- function of the fact that the uh, the deficit numbers are actually worse than expected. So the country may be starting from a worse position, as it were. So um, the deficit numbers just the, the austerity numbers look slightly more gentle than than appeared. But I, don't, I think it's going to still feel pretty austere if you're a Portuguese person. So what we what we know today is uh, on Wednesday is that Portugal has been successful in getting bailout money out of uh, the multilateral organisations, yeah. and that it's a significant sum of money. What we don't know is interest rates. That's right. Do we think that's enough to buy market confidence for now? Uh, the, the initial uh, reaction this morning was, uh, I think, to knock uh, the yield on Portuguese debt down by about half a percentage point. Yeah, um, which is uh, you know a, a reasonably sizable move. But I mean, really, you've got to look at it. Sort of, you know, what's what's going to be the rate in six years, six months' time, a year's time? It may well be enough to you know kick the can down the road for for three years or so. The story, I think, will revert fairly quickly towards Greece, where debt restructuring uh, looks inevitable and it's the, the, the argument is over the mechanism by which that is conducted. Um, then the kind of the sovereign debt crisis in, in the Eurozone uh, story is back on and that could easily have knock-on effects on Portugal and Ireland. Leave your comments on this week's podcast on our page, guardian.co.uk forward slash the business. That's all we've got time for today. My thanks to Philip Blonde, Andrew Sims, Shiv Malik and Niels Prattley. The producer was Phil Maynard. I'm Edith Shakaborty. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.